How does uncertainty make you feel? When you think about that word, when you think about uncertainty, how does it make you feel? What's the first response that you have to that? Maybe you have faced uncertainty. Maybe you've spent a period of time in some difficulty of trying to figure out what to do. What's the next thing to do? Maybe in that time you got conflicting advice from various people, family, friends, uh, various online sources if you're looking at, at internet articles on a particular subject. One source said, this is right. Another source said, no, that's right. And maybe from another source you got all together that said, no, no, neither of those things are right. Here's a whole other option. And it's way better than this other stuff. And really, you might be facing uncertainty in your life right now and just kind of thinking about that and, and thinking about the, the conflict of all these different sources might be making you a little bit uncomfortable right now. And I can totally understand that. We all like to be certain. We all like to know what the right answer is, don't we? I mean, really, doesn't that just make us feel better? And sometimes it's hard to know because in this world we live in, we face uncertainty every day. And we really, sometimes we don't have any clear direction at all. But that can leave us wondering, it can leave us discouraged, it can, it can leave us struggling. And so the good news is this. John wants us to know. John wants us to have a sense of certainty. And so in his letter that we're looking at right now, we're going to see that John is going to lay this out for us, and he's going to help us to know how we know. And so that's a tremendous blessing for us, and it's a great relief, quite frankly. So let's go ahead and jump in to God's word right now. Let's take a look at verses 1 and 2. He says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Notice that John shows genuine affection in this letter. Really, he sounds like a loving father writing a letter to his children. Sometimes we're going to see that he uses pretty strong language in this letter. But we need to keep in mind that he loves the people of the church, and really he's concerned for their well-being. So really what we see here is John's writing as a coach. He's, he's not really writing as a critic. So keep that in mind as we go along. When John wrote this letter, he was in his late 90s, um, probably close to 100 years old. And he saw a lot happen in his life leading up to this point. 
Um, he saw his friends die. He, he was um, probably the last of the apostles at this point. And so he'd lived a lot of life and he'd seen a lot happen. And remember that John was one of the two guys that Jesus called the sons of thunder. So he was probably a pretty fiery kind of guy. He probably had a fairly short temper. If Jesus is gonna call you one of the sons of thunder, yeah, chances are pretty good that you have a bit of a short fuse. But we look at this letter and we see now how loving John is. He's gone from one of the sons of thunder to more of a loving father. So we think about that and we can think, wow, what an impact Jesus had on this man's life. That now no longer is he a son of thunder, now he is a loving father figure. And I think that's pretty amazing. So it's also important for us, and really for those people back then when this letter was written, to understand John's intentions here. Because the uncomfortable topic of sin is going to come up a lot throughout this letter. So we do need to remember that John wants to help. John doesn't want to beat us up here. John is concerned about the effects of sin. He, he is, right? So he's not going to gloss over that. But he really doesn't want us to react in extreme ways here. Because we could. We could go either direction and act in an extreme way. For one, we want to make sure that we don't make the mistake of thinking that really sin's not a problem. Right? We don't, we don't want to go there. But we also don't want to go to the other extreme and think, oh, wow, sin is such a huge problem that there's no possible way that I could ever overcome it. And because of that, I'm just going to give in. So he doesn't want us to err on either side of that, right? He's going to try to give us direction to keep us down the middle of the street, well balanced. So that's why he exhorts us not to sin. And we also know that with God's help, we absolutely can overcome some of these habitual, repetitive sins that get in our way with, with our relationship with the Lord. But um, John does point out that we do need to be more honest about the struggle that we have with sin. And he reminds us in verse 1 that Jesus speaks to the Father in our defense, which is why John refers to Jesus as advocate. This is the same Greek word often translated comforter or counselor. The idea is that Jesus is on our side. And when we fall short, Jesus comes alongside us to comfort, counsel, guide us, and be our advocate with the Father. So this is a really important point. The point of why do we need an advocate? We need an advocate because we know that we have an accuser, and that is Satan. He brings our guilt, hypocrisy, lies, all of our sins 
he brings those to the Father in hopes that we might be judged and ultimately condemned for those sins. But the Father doesn't desire to judge us. He actually delights to show mercy. And in verse 2, we read that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Now, propitiation, it's not a word that we probably use in everyday language. It's, it's not going to come up very often. And other translations of the Bible actually use the words atoning sacrifice or the sacrifice that atones for our sins. This means that the Father sent Jesus to earth as the perfect sacrifice to take away our sins. And Jesus now stands before the Father as our constant ally. So think about it like this. Imagine this in terms of helping us understand the roles of Father, Son, and Spirit. So think about a courtroom in heaven. That's where you and I are on trial for our sins. Satan, he's the prosecuting attorney because he's described in scripture as our accuser. God the Father is seated at the bench, the throne of heaven, because he's described in scripture as the one who ultimately judges all men and women. The Holy Spirit is the defense attorney and sits next to us to plead our case. He's with us because scripture says that the Spirit was sent to be with us as our advocate or counselor. Where's Jesus? He's sitting next to the judge at the bench. Scripture tells us that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, which means he carries the full authority of a judge. But the trial's tilted in our favor because Jesus also is our advocate. So when we stand accused of sin, we have two advocates to defend us against the accuser and plead our case. So if we're in relationship with Jesus, we know that when we confess our sins, we can live in full confidence that we've been forgiven. Our two advocates will make sure of that. And if you were here last week or you listened online, you may recall that verse nine from chapter one said that God is faithful and just to forgive our sins faithful and just. But how is it just to be forgiven my sins if, quite frankly, I'm guilty of sin? So how's that just? Well, God is just because a price has been paid for our sins. There has been a punishment which was delivered. That punishment was taken by Jesus on the cross. He paid the penalty for our sins. And that's why instead of standing condemned before God, we can stand forgiven. And it is true that God is holy, righteous, and perfectly just. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 speaks to this and says this about Jesus. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that's referring to the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, 
you have been healed. So, knowing that we are broken people living in a sinful world, each one of us must decide how to respond to this truth. God's desire is that we would respond by believing in him, repenting, that is, turning away from our sin, and then in faith to be baptized into Christ to receive forgiveness of our sins. God wants us to enter into a relationship with him, and he wants that relationship to be based on truthful living. So after John makes the case of who Jesus is and what he did for us, he shifts gears a bit. And leading into this, I think it's important to understand that the church was facing a real challenge back in this time. And I've got a couple of reasons for wanting to highlight this. First, I think it can help us really understand uh, why John is so vehement about certain things as he writes through this letter. And secondly, I think it can help us today because we do face similar challenges as a church today that they faced back then. So in the day when John wrote this letter, the early Christian church was being misled by false teachers called Gnostics. That word comes from the root gnosis, which means knowledge. And these false teachers were creating a lot of confusion in the church, and they were leading a lot of people away from God with their teaching. They claimed to know God, but they weren't actually living their lives from that. They, they were not living truthful lives as people who know God. And we know one thing for sure. We know wrong believing leads to wrongdoing. And so John was wanting to come through and he was wanting to actually cut through all that noise and he was wanting to bring the truth. And so that's, that's what he was doing. And we need that today just as much as they needed it back then. And you know, honestly, for purposes of this sermon series and just to help us remember who these guys are, I think we should start calling the Gnostics the non-sticks because they really weren't sticking to God's word. And I know it's Father's Day, so that was my bad dad joke for the day. And I can almost literally hear eyes rolling, so we'll go ahead and move on. So verses three through six. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. In response to many of the things that were happening, John wanted to be sure to remind us that what we say needs to align with what we do. If we claim to know the Lord and to have a relationship with him, then we should naturally want to honor him. 
our lives should reflect obedience rather than disobedience. And let's be clear about John's focus here. Momentary disobedience, the occasional lapse, it's a problem we all struggle with. But what John's most concerned about here is perpetual disobedience. Okay, and that's, that's the lifestyle that the false teachers were embracing and that were trying to bring others along with them. If we claim to be Christians who know God but are consistently disobedient toward him, then we really don't know him very well. If we find that we regularly struggle with sin, the best response is not to try harder, but instead to simply draw closer to God and allow him to change our heart. John is really serious about the fact that he wants us to know God and to have confidence in knowing that we do know him. And this is a thread that runs throughout this entire letter. I did a quick search through our ESV Bible translation, and I found that John uses the words know, known, and knowledge 39 times throughout these five chapters. That's not a very long letter. But one of the things our enemy Satan tries to do is he tries to reduce Christianity to a set of intellectual principles to make it simply a moral code, if you will. John wants us to understand that our goal is not primarily to know facts from the Bible and therefore know things about God, though both of those are extremely important, don't get me wrong, but our primary goal is actually to know God himself. That's essential, and that is what God desires of us. To be in relationship with him is the only way in which our lives truly will be transformed. Because if we know Jesus, then obedience is not a duty, it's an act of love. And that's where we need to be. So let's learn to be honest. Let's be honest about the struggle with sin that affects our relationship with God. And when we sin, let's not run from him. But instead, let's draw close to him. Because the better we know him, the less we'll struggle with sin. And if we're being completely honest, we don't just struggle in our relationship with God. Sometimes we struggle with each other. So let's look at verses 7 and 8. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. John transitions now from highlighting the importance of obedience as an expression of our love for God to the importance of loving others. Here he writes about a commandment which he describes as both old and new. So which is it? The context leads us to believe John is referring to the Ten Commandments, which form the foundation of right relationship with God 
and with others. The Ten Commandments are old because God gave them to mankind a long time ago, giving the people instruction on how to live out life in that culture. But these commands are also new because of the revolutionary way that Jesus restated them. He freed us from living under the Ten Commandments as laws, and he encouraged us to live them out as acts of love. In Mark chapter 12, verses 30 and 31, Jesus summarized the Ten Commandments with two simple phrases. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus lived this out perfectly in his life on earth, and he's our perfect model to follow and imitate. John is making this case because of the fact that the ancient Jewish people used God's law to exclude others rather than including them in God's family. For example, one Jewish saying was this, the Gentiles were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. It's a pretty rough statement, right? That's, that's a tough one. God didn't give his commands to, propo- to promote hatred like this, though. God wants us to learn to love others, particularly the brothers and sisters uh, who are in God's family. John sees that the darkness of life under the exclusionary Jewish law is passing, and the light of Jesus is now shining in order to continually draw people into God's family, where the Father wants us to experience fruitful and fulfilling relationships with one another. We don't always get along with each other, which is normal for us as humans, but God does not want us to simply accept this as an unchangeable condition. Jesus invites us to work through our imperfect attitudes and actions and overcome them, which is why John urges us toward love rather than hate. So let's take a look at verses nine through 11. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So, um, on the screen you can, you can see a cave, And as I thought about this, I was kind of reminded of a family trip that um, I took with mom and dad and my brother to Oregon Caves National Park when I was really young. And I remembered learning about the stalactites and the stalagmites and how you could remember which one of those was which. That stuck with me my whole life. And so, the way you know is the stalactites stick tight 
to the ceiling of the cave. The stalagmites might someday make it to the top of the cave. And so that's how you know the difference between the stalactites and the stalagmites. So that's the geology lesson of the day to go along with the horrible dad joke from earlier. So that's, that's for free. I'm, I'm just throwing that in for free. But there is actually more to the cave than that. Um, one of the other things I still to this day remember, I, I'm telling you, I remember the stalactites and stalagmites and I remember this other thing vividly that I'm gonna tell you about. I don't remember anything else about it, about the trip, but these things stuck to me. At one point, deep in the cave, the tour guide wanted to demonstrate for us how dark it is inside the cave. And so at one point, they switched out all the lights. And I'm telling you, it, it couldn't have been more than five, 10 seconds. And it felt like an eternity of this darkness. When they switched out the lights, we were just completely engulfed in total, complete darkness. No light at all. And it was, it's hard for me to imagine trying to navigate in that condition because you see all these rocks and things sticking up. Man, I, I'd be tripping over these stubby little stalagmites. I'd be bashing my head into these stalactites hanging down. It would not be safe to do that, to be in darkness and to try to navigate. And I know we don't have a cave here to go down into, but can you imagine what it would be like if each one of us put on a blindfold, stood up, and tried to walk around the room and change seats? It would be terribly unsafe. We would be running into one another, we would suffer severe harm for ourselves and for each other. And so why would we intentionally want to live our life like that? Why would we want to intentionally be in darkness where we would suffer harm ourselves and we might do harm to others? That's no way to live our life. And we shouldn't want to live in darkness because it's not safe or healthy. But God's word tells us that if we allow hatred to take up residence in our heart, we're doing just that. We're living in darkness, blinded, and stumbling. Hatred takes on many forms. We certainly can treat others with outright hatred, but we can also treat others with contempt or disgust, or even benign neglect. Or what about that Christian we feel is simply a nuisance or an irritant? These kinds of attitudes may not be hatred per se, but they certainly don't reflect the love of Jesus either. Honesty compels us to confront these attitudes within us and strive to resolve conflicts and disagreements that we have before it becomes hatred. So let's not carry hatred around. Let's strive to walk in the way that Jesus walked. 
In his life here on earth, there were many times that Jesus could have turned to hatred of people he encountered. Think of what he went through. He was reviled by Jewish leaders, abandoned by his friends, mocked, beaten, and inevitably taken to the cross to die, and he was completely innocent. He didn't deserve any of it. But did he turn to hatred? Did he take offense? Did he harbor resentment, ill will, any of these things? No, no, he loved, and he loved right up to the very end. When he was dying on a cross, he showed love. And I know, when we feel wounded, it can be very difficult for us to process through those feelings. Hatred can come from those wounds if we aren't on guard against it. And hate is very damaging to us. So we have to face it head on or we risk allowing our enemy Satan to get a foothold in our heart and inevitably entice us to unhealthy, destructive behaviors. Rather than harboring the hate, we need to take those feelings to God and allow him to make a change in our heart. If we do this, we will be able to stay in the light and avoid the darkness. So let's go ahead and take a look at verses 12 through 14. It says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. As John often does, he seems to make a bit of a loop back to where he started. Uh, you might remember Bruce last week talking about how John is sometimes a bit circuitous in his writing, and I, I kind of found that here as well. So I like how he bookended this section of his letter. He started the section by reminding the church of the salvation we have through Jesus. After that, he related some pretty tough and challenging truth for us. So now here in verses 12 through 14, he's balancing truth and grace by once again reassuring his audience then and us now of our secure position that we have in Christ as he relates the fact that we're all in different stages of our spiritual conditioning. John specifically calls out three different groups in this part of his letter. We can relate these three groups to three different stages of spiritual growth. Children, youth, and adults. And these stages absolutely apply to women as well as men. So nobody's off the hook here. Children. Children are immature and insecure. 
So spiritual children have a young and fragile faith and must remember that their sins are forgiven. They must remember that through Jesus, they have direct access to the Heavenly Father. If you're a spiritual child, God wants you to know that you don't need to run away from him when you sin. Youth. Youth is a time of passion and temptation. So spiritual youths must remember that God's strength to overcome temptation is within them. If you're spiritually young, remember when you face temptation that you have conquered temptation before and you can do it again. Adult maturity is a time when people might tend to kick back and think they have it all together. They can live the Christian life by habit rather than by faith. So spiritually mature people must remember that they are in a relationship with the living God, not adhering to a religion of rules. It's really important for us to understand that these different stages exist. I think John highlights this because he knows if we don't keep this in mind, younger Christians may get discouraged and more mature Christians may become complacent. Christians in the youth stage might also take on too heavy a load trying to care for the youngers if some of the more mature Christians don't come alongside to help. We must always keep in mind that spiritual growth and chronological age don't necessarily correspond. Many people enter into relationship with Jesus in their later years, and just because of that, they don't get to skip over stages. Likewise, a person who is younger in physical years may be more advanced in spiritual maturity, having walked with the Lord for a longer period of time. And lastly, if you're here today or if you're watching online and you're new to all of this, it's important for you to know that you don't need to have everything figured out. You just need to step out in faith and begin a relationship with Jesus. The growth is going to proceed from there. And that is extremely important to understand. The truths in this letter are absolutely timeless. Though John's words were penned many years ago, they are just as applicable in our lives today as they were when they were written. There was wisdom here for the early church, and there's wisdom here for us right now. So if you're joining us for the first time today, or if you've been with us for a while and you don't yet know Jesus, we would love to talk to you and help you start a journey with him. There's nothing more important than truly knowing him in a personal relationship. So if this is you, please don't wait another day. If you're here in person, let us know by filling out the connection card that you'll find in your bulletin. And there's a box on there you can, you can check if you would like to start this journey with Jesus. Or after the service, you can, you can come find me, um, Robin or Peter, uh, the other elders, and start that conversation with us.
If you're online, uh, there's a connection card link at, uh, toward the top of the screen. Please check that and, and let us know, and we'll reach out to you as well. Um, if not, if you're listening, it's not the live stream, maybe you're listening to the sermon audio later in the week, you can always go to the website, thurston.church, and you can scroll down to the bottom of that, click the link to email us, and we'll get back to you as well. Church, if we choose to apply the truth of God's word to our lives, we absolutely can be a community who is committed to truthful living. Let's pray. Father, Father, we thank you for this word. Father, we thank you that you do want us to truly know you, not just know facts about you, not just know facts that we find as historical record in the Bible, though those things are all wonderful and we do need to know those things. But Father, we know that you crave being in relationship with us. And so Father, I pray that you would cover us this day. Lord, I I pray for your protection over the church. And Lord, I pray that hearts would be changed and that your word would be applied in very real ways. And Lord Jesus, we thank you, we love you, and it's in your name we pray, amen.